The rest of us will be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, page 992, the very bottom of the page. We have been working our way by God's great help through this marvelous letter that the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy as he's uh, commissioned as one of his mentees, a protege of the apostle, to deal with some difficulties uh, in, in the local church in Ephesus, a, a hub of many local churches, I think. There were probably a lot of um, gatherings, such as ours, uh, represented in Ephesus at this time, quite a, quite a hub of the faith, a gospel proclamation in all of Asia, really. And um, and this text today, uh, you know, and throughout the letter, really, Paul has been uh, using Timothy, encouraging him, lifting up his timid heart, his weak hands to uh, exhort and sometimes to defend the faith. And I think uh, well, all of us have had a time when, when, well, we've all, if you're listening, you're old enough and you're listening to English you know that there's been times when you yourself needed correction. It's difficult to receive correction. And I know your mom and dad used to say, this is what harder for me than it is for you. And none of us believed them until we ourselves were parents. Amen? Amen? If you have had a friend, uh, you don't have to be a parent yet. If you've had a friend that you've seen something amiss in their life, and you've loved them enough, been bold enough and courageous enough to, to speak up, uh, to correct, to kind of try to come alongside that person, uh, you will know how difficult this is. And I'm speaking not to those who are easy to, there are the critics among us in the world and maybe even in this room and in our own hearts where we find it quite easy to criticize. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about those uh, who would speak a word of correction um, and be afraid that it wouldn't be heard or that you would lose access to that one, a child, that you lose their heart, if not, that they would flee from you, or a friend, that you'd break a friendship. How do you correct? How do you correct in the body of Christ? This is what Paul writes to Timothy on. In 1 Timothy 5, the first two verses is all we'll read. It's, really, it's actually two verses, but one sentence uh, in the original language there in Greek. Uh, and we'll kind of unpack it uh, with God's help uh, right now. So 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, Paul writes... Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. It's short enough that I can actually read it again. You ready? <laughs> Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity, in all purity. There is a, an interesting book by uh, Dr. Al Mohler called uh, He Is Not Silent. In the book, he talks about some of our heritage here in America and, and the work of Christ uh, and by the Spirit that has kind of, that we have inherited, I'll say it that way. And a great, uh, they call it the Great Awakening, a great revival that, that is the kind of thing that the human uh, effort can never parody or copy. It's a work that can only be attributed to the work of the living God. God did a work in our nation in the, in the early 1700s, 1740, right around there. And uh, it's, 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 it's unexplainable. Uh, apart from there is a living God who can intercede on behalf of the whole society. 
uh, in behalf of a human heart. And uh, in that time period, because of the ardor of when God draws near, you're, you're a bit astonished by his holiness, by his realness, by his power. When you read of like Abraham, we were reading in my family's worship time this, this, uh, this week in Genesis, the first encounter with the term, the name of God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God of an arm long enough to reach to Cambodia and back. Right? When you read of such a God, you, you don't play around with such a God. And those early settlers, those early uh, folks, mostly on the east coast uh, of our great nation, uh, they took so seriously the call to, to read God's word and apply it, they actually invented or started up a, a new idea. Uh, let's, let's help the body of Christ apply God's word. Uh, let's, let's, let's have a role of an exhorter. Uh, they use that kind of idea here. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as you would an, a father. And so they started this, you know, we have elders and deacons. We've talked about this. They were, you know, they were earnest back then, maybe more than we are now. And they, they established this role of an exhorter in, in our history of our, of our land. And there's a guy named Isaac Bacchus who was initially an, an, an exhorter. He goes on to be a great uh, Baptist preacher in the 1700s. And initially, though, he was an exhorter in the congregation. And to, I can be clear on what that means. Dr. Muller describes it this way, that after a preacher would give a message and deliver it, and he would say amen or do his prayer or whatever, then this young scrapping lad, 15-year-old cannon fodder, <laughs> would step up and say, now, Widow Jones, what this means for you is you got to stop doing X, Y, Z to little Johnny in front of the whole congregation. This, little, this exhorter would come up and say, Mr. Smith, this must mean that you will change how you do your business uh, at the hardware store tomorrow. Now, you can imagine uh, the role of exhorter uh, probably had a pretty quick turnover. <laughs> uh, and maybe it was somewhat of an indication of, of Bacchus's, uh, you know, uh, how, do we, how do I say this, that he, that he was expendable, <laughs> that you would ask a young man. Or maybe also it is indicative that, that sometimes the youth among us are particularly willing to do dangerous things. <laughs> dangerous things. Now, my point here is, uh, in my opinion, you know, small opinion. I'm, I'm grateful that the Church in America did not continue the role of exhorter. I for sure am glad I didn't have to do that when I was 15. Uh, that did not fall to me. But I do think they are on, on to one thing. Let's take God serious in his word. Let's be a household of faith, a family that seeks to correct and encourage and exhort one another to admonish application of the gospel, Right? To see strength, health, and marriage, and family. I mean, God must want that. He wouldn't be giving us so many children. Every little one that's born is, is, a, is a supernatural, a work of the living God, the creator of this universe. And he, he gives blessings to who he gives blessings to. Psalm 127 says they're a reward from God. So let us work on to that. Now, now here's the thing. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy and it's in a kind of a dysfunctional house. We've been reading this. If you've been with us for this journey or you've checked these things out, uh, previous messages online, you, you know some of the, the difficulty that he's in. And he's sent in uh, kind of as a commando for Christ uh, to bring health to a unraveling uh, situation where there's dysfunction and disorder and disorder 
disagreement in the local church and where people are in that kind of a, a, a climate where there's disorder and, and people are starting to lose focus on the gospel that pro provides cover, I suppose, for sin to flourish in all manner of evil ways. And that seems to be happening because now he, he addresses uh, Timothy and he, he gives him some guidance on how to bring a, a difficult word to someone in the church. Uh, a difficult word uh, to someone in the church. What is God's word saying here when it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. What is it saying here? The word uh, do not rebuke, it, it means do not rebuke, right? <laughs> yeah, I love uh, shocking you with the, the, the amazing grasp of Greek I have. It just means do not rebuke. It just means, and it's the only time this, this word's used in the New Testament, by the way, a Greek word, but it means don't sharply rebuke. It means don't be harsh. Don't, be, don't beat him up. Don't beat him down. That kind of idea. It's a violent rebuke. Uh, don't hammer him with harsh words. Might be a way of, of, of uh, rendering this, this concept. Don't rebuke harshly. In fact, maybe your English translation includes that, that adverb, harshly. It's a, good, it's a good translation. But instead, it says encourage. Maybe yours says exhort. Make an appeal and entreat this man. Uh, a good paraphrase might be to strengthen him by your words. To strengthen him. It's the, the Greek word parakaleo, which is related to the paraclete. And some of you who have studied a little bit of the Bible for a few years will understand that that word is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the exhorter, the comforter, the strengthener, the resourcer, the paraclete. Serve in that manner, in like manner, where you are exhorting an older man, young Timothy, is what he's saying. Uh, you might put it this way. It is, you look at this sentence and you very clearly will see that it describes kind of a positive tone in your correction rather than sort of a, 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 an oppositional tone or a, an antagonistic tone where we're debating someone of a different position. He says, uh, writes here, do not rebuke but encourage an older man, as you would a father, as you would a father. Now, Timothy's a young man, right? And you, you, you kind of look at this text and you see there are kind of four quadrants. If you did an X, Y axis where one is age and one, is, one of the axes is age, the other one is uh, our gender or sex, you, you, you would see that you fit in one of these four categories. So either as an older man, I'm not going to embarrass anyone, have a stand up at the right time because then there's that I'm 46, where do I qualify? Do I sit down, fight down? I don't, both. I, I just know I'm on that one side. <laughs> you know, are you an older man, a younger man, an older woman, a younger man, a younger woman, excuse me. So you're in one of these four quadrants, and so much of what he's referring to is how a person in one quadrant, one area, relates to someone in a different quadrant who's different than you, right? And also, actually, he gives direction on how to relate to someone, how to correct someone who's in your own quadrant, a younger man, if you're a younger man, and thus and so forth. Why, why does it do that? Well, First Timothy, the whole letter is written, and in, in, in this, this sentence too, in chapter 5, 1, 2, uh, it's, it's not flowing from a desire by God or by the Apostle Paul for good etiquette or uh, the status quo or reinforcing social, social norms, let's say like that. Uh, he is talking about weaving together a healthy household of faith. We know that because 
And, and you by now know exactly what verse I'm about to go to. The key verse that explains what this whole letter is about. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Uh, Paul writes it this way. Just to clue you in. on this, this is why he wrote this sentence in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Why? I wrote this thing. Because I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You correct with your eye on the fact that Christ has ascended to a place of incredible glory with authority and power and a dignity that befits something altogether other than you will ever know in this world. You correct someone recognizing that he could be coming back at any moment. And what if he were to find you in the midst of the sentence that you were uttering to your wife, to your son, to your daughter to appear? You correct as someone who's on the edge of glory, yours and theirs. You correct as someone recognizing that there's, there's someone, something that matters a great deal more than even your heart, your life as an individual, or even your specific relationship that you're trying to address with this one person. That is the church of the living God. That is Christ, the king of his church. You correct with your eye that you are part of a people that, that doesn't belong here, that are sojourning, that are in between, partly with our foot in heaven and partly in worldliness. And that's what we're trying to pull out of ourselves and out of one another and why we correct. You correct out of someone who, who loves Christ. Look at the terms that he uses for each of these relationships. And they are very relational terms that he says to Timothy. An older man, don't just think of him as an old man. Think of him as if he were your father. Don't treat a, an older woman as if she were just an old woman. Treat her as if she were your mother. That's a relational term, isn't it? Mother. Younger women, treat them as sisters with all purity. Other young men like yourself, Timothy, treat them as brothers. Treat them as Brothers, the thing about family, you may have heard that, that saying that family is forever. You know, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your brothers, right? <laughs> or your sisters. You're, you're stuck for them, with them. You now people can strain and they can run. And, and Yes, we can be childish. But whether you like it or not, by DNA, you're related to certain people on this planet. In like analogy, none of us got to select who came to church this morning to gather with us, did we? They, we each self-selected. And as you're growing in Christ, you begin to realize that you are only have the gift of faith because God first moved in your life. Which means actually that God picked you. You didn't pick him. Yes. And if God picked everyone who's in here, that means they're your brother. They're your sister. An older man is your father. Uh, an older woman is your mother in the faith. And remember, the family is Forever. Not only in this world, we, you know, biologically, that's somewhat true, but in heaven, it is all the way true. All the way true. Correct understanding that you'll get to see that person forever. 
Speak up because you'll see that person forever. Do you understand? Speak up because you will see that person forever. In my uh, marriage counseling and in our marriage maintenance back in January, I had used this quote, and I think it's good, so I'm going to reuse it. Uh, it, there's a guy, I don't remember now who, who wrote this, but I thought his insight was dead on. He said that my wife does not learn about my sins like my physician learns about my diseases or like my counselor learns about my anger or fear. She knows my sins because they're so often committed against her. In the family of Christ, the idea is we're a household of faith and part of growing up is becoming a better brother, a better sister, more connected, more sacrificial, more engaged, more woven together. And the tighter you get, the closer you get, the more intimate that you get, the more that the edges get rubbed off. The more that others see in you and about you and the more you see in them and about them. And of course, we've all been part, if you're old enough, you've been part of more than one congregation and there's a tendency or a temptation if you've been bruised or injured once or twice or many times to withdraw from God's desire that you be knit together with a fellowship. A fellowship is, is supposed to be tightly woven together, and that will require correcting one another at the right time and in the right way. It seems to me that one may have, way of putting what Paul says here is kind of customize your correction to fit, to be appropriate to the relationship you have with the person who needs correction. Or to flip it to the other side, receive correction from others around you as your role as a father in the faith or a, or a brother in the faith. The scriptures are quite clear. There are lots of things that should not factor into correction. That should not be, uh, they're not reason for showing partiality. Things like financial things or, or skin color or ethnicity or language. Those are, those are not the things that sort of direct or, 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 or that we ought to lean into for customizing how we approach one another. Not at all. But there are two facets that are mentioned in the scriptures. And you see it from the beginning to the end. And Paul makes it explicit here. The two aspects are sex and age. Sex and age. Your approach uh, must, not because you're, you know, sexist, ageist, if that's a word, <laughs> chauvinist, whatever. It, it, it's not about that. It, not because of those things, but because you actually see and love the person you're talking to, that you show great dignity, respect, and love, that you approach that woman or that man in certain ways as a mother, a father, a brother, or a sister. And not just as some generic Android. <laughs> Not recognizing your connection relationship to them is actually unloving and insensitive and disrespectful. Paul's addressing, he's an older man at this point in his journey, and he addresses his, a younger man, a brother, a son in the faith, he would say. In fact, he says in some places, Timothy, you're like my son in the faith. He's addressing a younger man, and this younger man has this incredible challenge of ministering to all quadrants. All quadrants. The, the older men in the midst of Ephesus, the younger men, the older women, the younger women. And uh, you, you need to think through this text and kind of transpose it for your situation. This is a, actually, it's helpfully li, ri, kind of listed out from the vantage point of words to a younger man. If you're a younger woman, transpose this. If you're an older man, transpose this. You, you, get the, you get the point. 
And you might think, well, this is pretty complicated and nuanced stuff. Pastor, can you give us some concrete clarity here? Can you help us? And I, I can't. I can't help you. <laughs> I can't help you. But I, I will say, let's look at, at the Apostle Paul as a possible exemplar, an example on how to do this sort of thing. So real quick, a couple of examples. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3, notice what he says. He uses this word exhort parakaleo. He uses that in 1 Timothy 1 3. And remember, he's an older man speaking to a younger man. And not only that, he's, a, he's an apostle speaking to a delegate. But even in those, you know, all of the, all of the right, you might say, that he had to kind of, sort of command Timothy to do certain things still, this is his approach with his protege, his, this younger man. He writes, as I urge you, as I exhorted you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. So he, he could command him, but instead he exhorts him, he coaches him. Come on, guys, we got this. You know, that kind of a thing. Instead of beating him or doing that. Well, and then you got, you got, as you think about Paul writing to, to his peer, the apostle, or I'm mean, speaking rather to his, his peer, the apostle Peter, Paul to Peter. Remember in Galatians, I, I didn't write down the page number, but I'll just read it for you. Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul records how he corrected Peter in this context as we think about exhortation. It's really quite interesting. You might reflect a little bit more this week on this paragraph. Galatians 2, 11, uh, Paul writes this, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see how he corrected him? He didn't accuse Peter. He didn't call him a hypocrite. He didn't call him names. He didn't rebuke him harshly. He actually opened and asked an open-ended question, giving Peter the chance to explain himself or to present his case or to respond in kind and rebuke Paul as being off base. He just gave him an opportunity. He didn't force Peter into a defensive mode. You understand what I'm saying? So when you're correcting someone, don't don't rebuke them harshly. Don't force them, back them into a corner verbally or otherwise that they become defensive. Instead, give them an opportunity to turn from their sin, to admit I was wrong, and to honor Christ. What about an older man to older women or to younger men in Philippians, or younger women, Philippians chapter 4 is a, is a beautiful description of, and fortunately we have this as the Spirit of God provided this for us, an example of how the Apostle Paul, an older man, speaks. We don't know if they were younger women or, or older women relative to him. We don't know that kind of information about them, but we do know there are women in the church. They were important. They were leaders in the church, so they probably were mature and older. So listen to how he speaks to Yodia and Syntyche, is their names. Philippians 4 verse 1 Therefore my brothers There you see familial language again Relational language Therefore my brothers whom I love and long for My joy and crown stand firm Thus in the Lord my beloved Philippians 4 2 I entreat Same word I exhort It's this paracoleto word I exhort Yodia and I exhort Syntyche to agree in the Lord 
Yes, I ask you also, true companion. I think he's referring to the whole church here. Help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What a gentle, gracious manner Paul has for these two dear ladies. He exhorts them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't say, knock it off. He says, oh, if you would just lift your attention away from your dispute and whatever it is, however warranted or not your discussions and disagreements and separation has been, let us remember why we are together, that is Jesus Christ. Fix your attention upward and the disagreements and disharmonies will melt away in the union we have in Christ. Do you see? He exhorts them in such a beautiful manner. It's, it's really quite beautiful. Another, another verse would be Romans 16, 13, where he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. One more passage uh, to bring to your attention is Titus chapter 2, because here he, he's talking to another protege, another delegate. He's talked to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Now in Titus, he's talking to another man he sent out to appoint elders, similar uh, mission or, or calling. And he mentions these four um, quadrants, these four groups, again, uh, to this time to Timothy. Listen to his, his, uh, this scripture here, 1 Timothy 2.1. But as for you, I'm sorry, Titus 2.1, wrong, wrong book. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what, what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So there's, there's wisdom here, and I, I'm over time, so I will just say that there's much to unpack here, but self-control for all four areas of your life is, is, is encouraged and exhorted here by Paul through Titus to us. And uh, that's often what our corrective words are related to, is how we fall short, either in not being true to the gospel, faithful in our controlling our appetites, or our, uh, you know, our words with each other. Uh, and I would just say this, that, that you know, protecting the reputation, because he talks about that we might not slander the word of God, that we might behave ourselves so that we would be beautiful and ravishing and compelling as the bride of Christ to outsiders who just need, not the church, Christ. Right? They need Jesus. And they need to believe that he has power. And uh, partly why we're working with each other is for that, that reason. I, I'll finish with sort of the five R's of correction. I, I, I don't like my outline, so you may ignore these five R's, but here they are. <laughs> uh, relationship, responsibility, rightly ordering your loves. Do you have a right demeanor when you're speaking? And are you ready to see the Lord? Are you ready to see the Lord? Do I already have a relationship with this person? All those terms, father, mother, brother, sister, imply you know them well. 
It is very rare for you to be called to speak a harsh or a direct word to a stranger. And I would say also, if you're called to speak such a word, actually what God's calling you to do is to build a bridge, to be a bridge, and to build a relationship with that person. Do you understand? Yelling at people that they're wrong, it doesn't work. Especially when they don't even know they're wrong. They don't feel they're wrong. They are seared in their conscience. But if you love them, love may win a hearing. Uh, do you already have a relationship with a person? Do you have that responsibility, secondly, to speak? Timothy is given a unique responsibility. In fact, uh, Titus was too. And, and that's why we got to be nuanced a bit. And I, I don't have time to go into the, some of the nuances. But Titus chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. There are those who have authority in our lives. Elders, pastors over us. Uh, fathers to their sons. Mothers to their daughters, you know, those sorts of things. Do you have a responsibility? Do you, thirdly, have your, your, order, your, your loves rightly ordered? Because that's going to be necessary if you're going to rebuke or, or, or exhort in a faithful way. Remember in Matthew 7, and this is the most quoted verse in my generation, thou shalt not judge, right? Remember that verse? Do not judge. And then he goes on and he says, it's like if you have a log in your eye, a speck, and your neighbor has a speck in their eye, does Jesus say, well, since you have something in your eye and they have something in, in their eye, you should just walk away and leave it well enough alone? Is that what he says? <laughs> he says, what do you do first? Remember, take the log out of your own eye, then go and actually help your brother whom you judge, that is discern and evaluate, understand, they need correction. So have your, your loves rightly ordered in that. Don't speak as a superior as someone like that, but rather speak as a sinner who understands sin and has empathy for your struggle in it. Fourthly, do you have the right demeanor when you, you speak? What's your approach and your true goal? I think it was in the fourth branch when I included this quote in our, our tra training here by John Newton, which I think is dead on, where he writes, The longer I live, the more I see of the vanity and of the sinfulness of our unchristian disputes. They eat up the very vitals of religion. I grieve to think how often I have lost my time and temper that way in presuming to regulate the vineyard of others. When I have neglected my own. Are, are you regulate? Are you speaking a word of correction for your sake, really? Is it for you to have a more comfortable, less awkwardness, less strain, less difficulty with this difficult love person? Or is it, are you so in them with life that your, their sin hurts you terribly? And that you will be with them after you speak the word and not abandon them after you bring a harsh or a difficult word, rather. Finally, do you speak as a man who's ready to see the Lord? I'll end with that. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Beloved, we are going to see the Lord. It's going to happen. We're going to see the Lord. Do you speak to a brother or sister or to a father and mother as though you were, might be interrupted in your conversation by his return? Would you speak as someone who knows that God actually does hear what you're saying to your wife, to your child, and why you're saying it, the motives of your heart, right? Or do you speak as someone who is embarrassed, who's not ready for his return? I just would urge us to, to not lose track that Christ is imminent. He could return at any moment. Be found at your post.
Our Father in heaven, uh, we come before you and we need your grace and mercy. Your word is clear, but hard to implement. It's not complicated. It's not confusing. It's quite clear. We just, we struggle to lack the courage or compassion or both of them to apply it well. So grant by your spirit what we do not have in ourselves. A love for those around us like the Father, the Creator has, and like Jesus has. And grant that by one means or another, we might be a people set apart and holy unto the Lord, and that we might one day hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant.